0: Been heard of him since. No new recordings, no gigs, no interviews. If you love Tucker Crow as much as Duncan and a couple of thousand other people in the world do, that toilet has a lot to answer for. And since, as Duncan had so rightly observed, it can't speak, Crow fans have to speak on its behalf. Some claim that Tucker saw God or one of his representatives in there. Others claim he had a near-death experience after an overdose. Another school of thought has it that he caught his girlfriend having sex with his bass player in there, although Annie found this theory a little fanciful. Could the sight of a woman screwing a musician in a toilet really have resulted in 22 years of silence? Perhaps it could. Perhaps it was just that Annie had never experienced passion that intense. Anyway, whatever. All you need to know is that something profound and life-changing took place in the smallest room of a small club. Annie and Duncan were in the middle of a Tucker Crow pilgrimage. They had wandered around New York, looking at various clubs and bars that had some kind of Crow connection, although most of these sites of historic interest were now designer clothes stores or branches of McDonald's. They had been to his childhood home in Bozeman, Montana, where, thrillingly, an old lady came out of her house to tell them that Tucker used to clean her husband's old Buick when he was a kid. The Crow family home was small and pleasant, and was now owned by the manager of a small printing business, who was surprised that they had travelled all the way from England to see the outside of his house, but who didn't ask them in. From Montana, they flew to Memphis, where they visited the site of the old American Sound Studio, the studio itself having been knocked down in 1990, where Tucker, drunk and grieving, recorded Juliet, his legendary breakup album, and the one Annie liked the most. Still to come, Berkeley, California, where Juliet, in real life a former model and socialite called Julie Beatty, still lived to this day. They would stand outside her house, just as they had stood outside the printer's house, until Duncan could think of no reason to carry on looking, or until Julie called the police, a fate that had befallen a couple of other Crow fans that Duncan knew from the message boards. Annie didn't regret the trip. She'd been to the US a couple of times, to San Francisco and New York, but she liked the way Tucker was taking them to places she'd otherwise never have visited. Bozeman, for example, turned out to be a beautiful little mountain town surrounded by exotic-sounding ranges she'd never heard of. The Big Belt, the tobacco route, the Spanish Peaks. After staring at the small and unremarkable house, they walked into town and sipped iced tea in the sunshine outside an organic cafe, while in the distance the odd Spanish Peak, or possibly the top of a tobacco route, threatened to puncture the cold blue sky. She'd had worse mornings than that on holidays that had promised much more. It was a sort of random pin-sticking tour of America, as far as she was concerned. She got sick of hearing about Tucker, of course, and talking about him, and listening to him, and attempting to understand the reasons behind every creative and personal decision he'd ever made. But she got sick of hearing about him at home, too. And she'd rather get sick of him in Montana or Tennessee than in Gulinus the small seaside town in England where she shared a house with Duncan. The one place that wasn't on the itinerary was Tyrone, Pennsylvania, where Tucker was believed to live. Although, as with all orthodoxies, there were heretics. Two or three of the Crow community subscribed to the theory, interesting but preposterous, according to Duncan, that he'd been living in New Zealand since the early 90s. Tyrone hadn't even been mentioned as a possible destination when they'd been planning the trip, and Annie thought she knew why. A couple of years ago, one of the fans went out to Tyrone, hung around, eventually located what he understood to be Tucker Crow's farm. He came back with a photograph of an alarmingly grizzled-looking man aiming a shotgun at him. Annie had seen the picture many times, and she found it distressing. The man's face was disfigured by rage and fear, as if everything he'd worked for and believed in was in the process of being destroyed by a cannon shore shot. Duncan wasn't too concerned about the rape of Crow's privacy. The fan, Neil Ritchie, had achieved a kind of Zapruder level of fame and respect among the faithful that Annie suspected Duncan rather envied.